When Fiona Lowenstein caught COVID-19 in mid-March, her symptoms were the ones you'd expect. I just had a headache and a fever. And then the next day, I developed a cough. But fever and cough were really the only symptoms I experienced for that first couple of days. Her condition quickly got worse. She started having trouble breathing. So her doctor told her she should go to the hospital immediately. And by the point I went to the ER, I couldn't speak more than a couple words. I couldn't walk. I couldn't really move. Um, Unless I was lying flat in bed, really focusing on breathing, it was very hard to breathe. That was early in the pandemic. And at the time, it was surprising for someone like her to develop these kinds of serious symptoms. So I'm 26 years old. You know, I am otherwise healthy, exercise six days a week. I'm a fitness teacher part-time. And prior to contracting COVID, I did not have any significant pre-existing conditions. She was put on oxygen at the ER and admitted as a hospital patient. And within a few days, Fiona actually started to feel better. So she figured before long, she'd be back to her old self. The World Health Organization was saying that the recovery time for a mild case should be about two weeks and for a severe case, maybe six weeks. But since I wasn't put on a ventilator at the hospital and I am young, um, you know, and I felt I felt that my symptoms were improving. My fever was gone. My shortness of breath was very mild at that point. Even the nurses and doctors were telling me the hospital is not really where you want to be right now. It's getting really crazy here. So, um, you know, I they discharged me and I left. And I think we all kind of assumed that it would be a pretty quick road to recovery from there. A few days after I got home from the hospital, I picked up an essential oil and I was kind of trying to do, you know, some sort of normal bedtime routine because it had been so long since I'd been home and so long since I'd had a good night's sleep. And I opened this this bottle of lavender and I thought there was something wrong with it, that it was just filled with water because I couldn't smell anything. And then I started noticing a whole new host of symptoms. So I developed really serious GI issues. So diarrhea almost every time after I ate, I wasn't able to eat anything other than, you know, maybe a a few small portions of crackers or or noodles each day. Um, So I was kind of getting on the bathroom scale each morning and seeing the number continue to go down, which was quite demoralizing. I also experienced intense sinus pain, cold symptoms, so sore throat, stuffy nose, sneezing. Um, And, you know, to my knowledge, none of these were symptoms that I experienced in the first week. After spending a week at home, Fiona started to realize that her recovery wasn't going to be quick. I still at that point, though, did not expect that it would take the months that it ended up taking. Today on the show... Recovering from COVID-19 has been a months-long struggle for Fiona. But after she went public with her story in March, she found out that she wasn't alone. And the support that she and others needed could be created on the web. I'm Arielle Dimros. This is Reset. While recovering at home, Fiona Lowenstein started to feel isolated. There was this dissonance between how other people thought the disease progressed and how she was actually feeling. Almost felt like I had a dirty little secret, which was that I'm not really better yet and I don't know when I will be. A lot of people in my life were sending, you know, 
tons of texts while I was in the hospital and were really relieved to hear that I'd gotten home safely. But everyone kind of had this same narrative of, yay, you made it, you're done. How does it feel to be home and to have recovered? Right. And that was very difficult for me because I felt like I was really grateful for kind of this public outpouring of, you know, love and support from my friends, my family. But the reality was that I didn't feel like I was getting better at the rate that I should be. Fiona couldn't find much information on what recovery looked like for COVID-19. And many of her new symptoms weren't being talked about in the news, at least not yet. But she was glad that she knew for sure that she had COVID-19. She'd tested positive for the virus while in the hospital. A friend and colleague named Sabrina Blake wasn't so lucky. She hadn't been able to get tested. And every symptom she experienced, she intensely doubted. It made her doubt whether or not she had COVID. And she would actually text me and say, hey, I'm having terrible GI issues. Is that something you've experienced? And I would be able to say, yes, I'm going through the exact same thing. And we could kind of validate each other's symptoms. But mostly I was just grateful I had that positive COVID test because that allowed me to realize that these symptoms were COVID symptoms, whether or not they'd been talked about widely in the news. They were likely related to this intense viral infection that my body was fighting off. Right. Um, and that, I think, helped me kind of work through it a little bit better. Fiona remembers a particular FaceTime call she and Sabrina had after they both started to develop new symptoms. And we both kind of broke down crying during this FaceTime call because we both said to each other, I don't know how I would have gotten through this without you. I don't know how I would have gotten through this without just at least one person who understood who I could talk to. That support system they developed together, well, it wouldn't be long before it got a lot bigger. Because after she got home from the hospital, Fiona wrote an article about having a serious case of COVID-19 as a young person. It was published as an op-ed in The New York Times. So my Instagram, before this all happened, I probably had like 200 followers and I mostly posted pictures of like the dogs that I sit for. I'm a dog sitter and a dog walker. After that piece came out, I started getting a bunch of new followers. I started getting a bunch of DMs. And all of these people who were sick with COVID, I mean, a lot of them didn't know if it was COVID or not because they hadn't been able to get a test. A lot of them had really basic questions like, how did you know when to go to the hospital or what did they do for you at the hospital? But a lot of them also just wanted to connect on this like really basic level of kind of, I have this illness, it's in the news, it's crazy, no one else I know has it, I just need to talk to someone else who has it. What did it feel like to have all of these people reach out to you and ask you questions <laughs> like you're an expert? It was weird and it was a little stressful at first. And I had to, you know, send a lot of messages saying I'm not a doctor. And I, you know, I was joking to my partner that I should just make my email signature. I'm not a doctor <laughs> because <laughs> there were a lot of people who really wanted, you know, detailed information and answers to medical problems that I personally could not answer. Hmm. But at the same time, as I was kind of facing this, this social isolation from, from some of the people that I usually go to for support, um, because they just really couldn't understand my experience of being sick, I was truly finding a whole new group of people, kind of my people in this community of other COVID patients. Before the pandemic, Fiona and Sabrina worked together on an event series and media company that focused on wellness for women and LGBTQ people. It's called Body Politic. And they decided they could use that existing platform to launch an online support group for the people who were sending private messages to Fiona on Instagram. 
The group had a few dozen people in it when she wrote another article for The Times. This one about her complicated recovery. I mentioned the support group in the op-ed. We'd maybe launched it a couple couple days or a week before, and it was still relatively small at that point. After the op-ed came out, I think we had 2,000 people sign up to join the support group overnight. Wow. And I remember just myself and, you know, another member of our team kind of watching the Google form populate in real time. And I, I, I swear in that first, you know, two to three days, maybe like 3,000 people signed up. Okay, so a tremendous amount of people are joining. What are you noticing about the stories that you're hearing? The first thing that became clear was that this experience of long recovery and lingering symptoms was very common, at least very common amongst the people joining our group. And the second thing that became clear was that the proposed dichotomy between mild and severe cases that we were hearing so much about in the news, right? The idea that mild cases take two weeks to recover from, severe cases six weeks, that mild cases you can ride out at home, severe cases require hospitalization and sometimes being put on a ventilator. That whole kind of binary between mild and severe started to crumble a little bit in my eyes once I started talking to people in the group Hmm. because the majority of people joining the group had not been hospitalized. Um, and, you know, had not received the care that I had received because they'd been turned away when they went to the ER and told that their case was not severe enough. Um, But they had been dealing with symptoms for a very long time. And, you know, when I I think about it, while a low-grade fever may not seem like a severe symptom, if you have a low-grade fever for three or four weeks, that is a severe situation. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Yeah. (laughs) And there were a lot of people in the group going through that. Group members also talked about other unusual symptoms, like people developing bumps and small sores on their feet, a symptom they called COVID toes. And people were, you know, sharing pictures of their feet in the group for weeks (laughs) before someone said, hey, I found this article, this might be what it is. And, you know, then it took another several weeks for it to actually hit kind of the big mainstream media outlets. Um, We had people talking about neurological issues, GI issues, dermatological issues, which I I faced as well. Actually, I had rashes and hives in kind of the third stage of of the virus. Um, Mm. And these are things that, you know, are being talked about more now. But a lot of that is also due to some of the patient advocacy that's come out of this group. I mean, some of the people in this group are very eager to tell their stories and I've noticed that a lot of these articles that talk about the lingering symptoms, they do interview people, people from our group. The support group now has about 5,000 active members, and some of those members call themselves COVID-19 long haulers. What started as a group message on Instagram had gotten so big that they needed another online space. So now they're on Slack, the corporate communication app which lets them have a larger user base and different channels for specific topics. You know, at this point, we have channels for almost every system of the body. We have a channel on mental health. We have a channel called Need to Vent. I mean, it's kind of everything you can think of. Do you just get a ton of Slack pings all the time? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't keep my notifications on anymore because... The conversation's literally going 24-7. Like, there's people in every time zone. So (laughs) I am usually not keeping up with all of the notifications because I think it would be, at this point, kind of humanly impossible to do so. Fiona says the support group is especially important because lots of members haven't been able to get care for their long-lasting symptoms. Yeah, there is a huge, huge group of people in our group and outside of our group who seek care for COVID-19 and do not receive care 
Um, that has hmm. something to do with, you know, overwhelmed healthcare systems. Um, but it also has a lot to do with medical bias. And this is an issue that gets discussed in the group a lot. Some group members have shared their experiences of being dismissed by doctors. Many people kind of go to the ER with shortness of breath and are told that it's anxiety. And this also happens to the people who weren't able to get a COVID test in those early days when they weren't available. To make matters worse, studies suggest that patients are less likely to test positive for COVID-19 if they have to wait to get a test. So there's a lot of these long-haul patients who don't even get access to a test until week five or six, the test comes back negative, and then their medical provider says, okay, can't have been COVID. Even though we know that there's false negatives and we know that, you know, at that point, the the test may not be able to detect the virus as well. Um, There are some medical providers who just find it easier to kind of say, it's not that, it must be anxiety or something else and, and send these people home. And we know that there have been, you know, a couple of deaths associated with this, at least a few that we know of. Today, we're remembering 30-year-old Rana Zoe Munjin, a teacher. I, I know there's a story of a, of a teacher in Brooklyn who, um, you know, sought care and was told that her shortness of breath was anxiety. Munjin first reported symptoms in mid-March, but she was turned away from emergency rooms twice. By the time she was admitted, she was immediately put on a ventilator. She spent a month on the machine. And ended up dying. And very often it's black and brown communities. Very often, you know, it's women, LGBTQ plus folks, obviously plus size and fat folks, people with disabilities, anyone coming from a marginalized perspective who experiences medical bias, that's still going to be happening right now. And I think the pandemic has in some ways distracted us from the problems with our medical system and in some ways highlighted them. And this is one of the flaws in our medical establishment that has been highlighted, certainly for me, um, in the past in the past few months, just hearing people's stories. Fiona says the group also helps members decipher official health recommendations and guidelines from all over the world. Guidelines that often seem to contradict themselves. A lot of these recommendations are not always based on what's the safest thing to do, are sometimes influenced by politics or testing accessibility. Mm. I mean, that must be so helpful to be able to compare those kinds of notes and to also realize that, yeah, some recommendations are not necessarily the most informed, even if they come from your federal government, for instance. Totally, totally. I think the global nature of the group has definitely made all of us realize that this is a global problem that probably requires global solutions, despite the fact that, you know, each government is kind of handling it on a domestic or even state level. I think it does help with that knowledge that, you know, we may have to make these decisions, unfortunately, and it should not be this way. The burden of responsibility should not fall on the individual. But unfortunately, that we may have to make these decisions as individuals rather than just following, you know, whatever set of guidelines was put out for us by by our local authorities. After the break, what we know about the science of long-term COVID-19 symptoms and what we don't know and why it's so hard to figure out. This is Reset. Lois Parshley is a freelance reporter who wrote about long-term COVID-19 symptoms for Vox.com. She says the disease is a lot more complicated than it's generally described, because COVID-19 isn't just a respiratory illness. 
Patients are reporting pulmonary scarring, cardiovascular damage, abnormal blood clotting, uh, which can lead to deep vein thrombosis, strokes, or heart attacks. Um, And we're also seeing neurocognitive problems in some patients. Researchers in one paper actually called COVID-19 a global threat to the entire nervous system. We don't know for sure why the virus affects so many areas of the body, but it might have something to do with the virus's structure. You might have seen illustrations in the news. The virus is essentially a tiny ball with spikes or spines. The spines attach to a protein found on the outside of human cells. So it's a little bit like a tiny version of those birds that can get stuck on your socks after a walk. And its spines are pretty good at sticking, which means it doesn't require very much of the virus to cause an infection. The protein that the virus attaches to, it's called ACE2. And it's found on cells throughout the body. Which may help explain why the virus doesn't just impact the lungs. It can penetrate many of your organs, including your heart, your kidneys, your brain, and even the bloodstream. So why do these symptoms linger in the body? That is a a complicated question, and, and we don't know the answer to it yet. It is possible that the virus is persisting within the body's tissues. Other viruses, so take a very well-studied disease like measles. You can find viral RNA in immune system cells for six months after you've apparently recovered from measles. So it's it's possible that the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, may be persisting in people's bodies and that that is the source of some of these symptoms. In other words, the virus just sticks around and keeps wreaking havoc. Another answer could be an overactive immune response. You may have heard of these so-called cytokine storms where the immune system kind of kicks into overdrive and this causes its own symptoms. So these immune responses may help explain some of the emerging long-term complications. Sort of like your immune system got kickstarted by the disease and just never turned off. Exactly. But again, we don't know for sure. One thing we have some evidence for, patients who've recovered from COVID-19 probably aren't at high risk for reinfection, at least not in the short term. And patients who have symptoms that persist don't appear to be contagious for extended periods. South Korea's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for example, recently did a study on 285 patients who had retested positive after a negative test. And the study did not find any evidence that those patients had transmitted the virus to anyone else or that they themselves had been reinfected by people around them. That's a sliver of good news for people like Fiona Lowenstein and the members of her support group. Lois has been talking to people like them who still struggle with symptoms. I spoke to one woman who didn't want to be named because she works at a hospital and she's been sick for over six weeks and is still having relapsing fevers. Um, She's had four COVID-19 tests and she keeps testing positive, which she says she's actually thankful for because without the positive result, she's sure that her health concerns would be brushed aside even more than than they are now. Um, And she told me that people need to know that even doctors don't know what to do for COVID-19 patients who are having these kinds of extended symptoms. 
We also don't know for sure what proportion of patients will have long-term symptoms in the first place. But the estimates so far are sobering. The UK National Health Service has announced that they assume 45% of COVID-19 patients who've required hospitalization will need ongoing medical care. Hmm. So with the prevalence that we're seeing, that's a huge number of patients who are going to need ongoing medical treatment to fully recover from COVID-19. During past coronavirus outbreaks like SARS and MERS, a significant proportion of patients also suffered long-term complications. One study looking back at SARS patients followed 71 patients over 15 years and found that a third of them had reduced lung capacity and residual scarring. MERS is a little bit harder to study because fewer people were infected and many of those who were infected died. But one long-term study found that about a third of MERS survivors also had long-term lung damage. Given that finding, why are we surprised that this is happening to to patients with COVID-19? Like, shouldn't we have seen this coming? Well, some people would say that this isn't actually all that unusual. For example, during the influenza epidemic of 1918, uh, there was another epidemic you may not have heard of. It was a disease called encephalitis lethargica, and it caused patients to have a high fever, headache, double vision, uh, psychosis. It killed as many as 500,000 people between 1917 and 1928. Some scientists think that the 1918 flu outbreak may have been linked to this other chronic disease at least in some people. And we might be seeing a similar pattern with COVID-19. Ed Young, a science writer who's also written about this topic, has pointed out how COVID-19 long haulers report similar symptoms to another kind of, well, it has a long, complicated name. It's called myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. Shortened to a more manageable ME slash CFS. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, it's a serious long-term illness. You might not have heard of it, but it affects as many as 2.5 million Americans. And we still don't know exactly what causes it, but clusters seem to follow infectious outbreaks. So all this to say, it's not entirely unexpected that after a large viral outbreak, some people would experience long-term symptoms. Lois says there's a lot of interest from scientists to figure out exactly what's going on with these long-term symptoms. But that research either hasn't happened yet or is just beginning. Yeah, we're in the very early stages of understanding this new disease, but that doesn't help the people who are suffering its consequences right now and for whom being told that we don't know all the answers yet just sucks, frankly. In the meantime... Patients in Fiona Lowenstein's support group have taken research into their own hands. Basically, very early on, a group of patients within our support group connected with each other and set up a patient-led research team. So these were people who had COVID-19, were in our support group, and had backgrounds in survey design, uh, research, medicine, science, data analysis, hmm. and said, it's all this anecdotal evidence is really interesting, but I want to see, you know, kind of scientific data that explains this. You know, and these are all people who were also experiencing symptoms, and it's just absolutely remarkable that they had the energy to do this. But they all got together and basically volunteered their time 
time putting together a very extensive survey on prolonged symptoms, which they circulated to members of our group. I believe they also circulated it to a few other um, COVID support groups on the internet. They gathered more than 600 survey responses. Now, at the time of the survey, the average respondent had been having COVID-19 symptoms for 40 days, not the two weeks we keep hearing about. And that was two months ago. This week, researchers behind the survey told us that some group members have now had symptoms for more than 90 days. The researchers are now working on another round of surveys and collaborating with universities and other research institutions. For her own part, Fiona has mostly recovered from COVID-19. Now she's thinking about making this online support group sustainable for her members and for herself. I have never felt kind of so confused about the direction of my life. I was working a bunch of different gig economy jobs before COVID hit. The closures caused me to lose work. Getting sick caused me to lose work. I My income is far lower than it's ever been before, yet I'm busier than I've ever been. And I feel like I'm having more of an impact on the world than I've ever had in the past. Reset, and I'm Ariel Duemros. But you don't have to say it that way. If you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Will Reed and Skylar Swenson produce the show. Amy Drovzdowska is our editor. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Friday. Later, nerds. Later, nerds.